you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Meanwhile, we're continuing on in our 1 Thessalonians series. It'll probably be another seven weeks or so. And now we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 16, starting in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, it, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, in this little Macedonian church, this little church plant, something powerful, something miraculous happened. That something introduced profound suffering to this people in a way that they weren't experiencing before. And that same thing that introduced the suffering made all the suffering worth it. So, I mean, nothing's as precious to us as our own skin, right? I mean, we get down really to it. Our own comfort and safety matters to us a lot. And the things that we're willing to set our comfort and safety aside for are few and far between, like our children or our country, perhaps. But at rock bottom, we, we matter to ourselves. And that's appropriate. That's good. But if something comes along that restructures your whole value system, something comes along that makes you be willing to suffer instead of experience ease and comfort, then that thing's got to be pretty incredible. And that's what we're talking about today, and that's what I want us to get in on today. I don't know anything more compelling than enduring suffering for a purpose. And because of that, I can't think of many questions this morning more important than the question of what made that suffering worth it for them. Just to be clear, this is a church that before they became a church wasn't suffering like this. And they became a church and were not just, they weren't just experiencing general suffering, they were experiencing suffering for the name of Jesus. And they said, bring it on. We're here for it because we're here for Jesus. So what could I receive then into my life that could transform me like that? To replace my value system, restructure my insides so that suffering becomes a privilege because it pales in comparison with this thing that's far greater and more valuable than my own comfort. So we're going to talk today mostly about the Word of God from verse 13. Let me just read that verse again, and we're going to get at the, the question. Verse 13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, 
not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we're going to ask three questions of this text today. What is the word of God? How do we receive and accept it? And then how does it work in us? So let me pray for the Father's help. Lord, as you speak your word to us now, like seed sown on soil, we ask that the devil may not snatch it away, that the heat of persecution may not wither it, and that our own cares and troubles won't choke it out, but that we might receive it like good soil, that it might grow and produce in us 30 and 60 and 100 fold for your glory. Amen. All right, so number one, what is the Word of God? Well, every Sunday we read the Bible, and it's part of our sort of liturgical practice. We say, this is the Word of God, and we all respond, thanks be to God, right? But what are we talking about when we say the Word of God? What is Paul talking about when he says the Word of God? It's, it's easy for that one to be lumped in with words like grace and, and faith and hope that are sort of good words, but they became, become part of this sort of Christianese, our, our insider lingo that gets used so much that we start to forget what it points to, what it stands for, what it's all about. So here's what we mean when we say the Word of God, and here's what Paul means when he says it. This is the definition. I think it'll be on screen in a minute. The Word of God is the words and message of the Bible as they terminate in revolve around, point to, explain, and glorify Jesus. The Word of God is the words and message of the Bible as they terminate in, revolve around, point to, explain, and glorify Jesus. Let me explain. In Luke 24, Jesus, the risen Jesus, is on the road to Emmaus, and he bumps into a couple of disciples of Jesus's, but they don't recognize him. And so under this um, sort of guise of not even being, you know, they're his disciples and they don't see the one that they're following. He says, let's open the Bible. This is the Old Testament. He goes, I'm going to explain how all of the law and the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, points to this guy, Jesus. And he teaches them that the whole Bible is all about him. It terminates in, revolves around, points to, explains, and glorifies him. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the Old Testament writers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So first, God's word came to us written down in the the words of the Old Testament through the prophets, but now God's word comes to us as a person, the word of God personified and embodied in Jesus Christ. John would say it's the word made flesh, the capital W word of God. In other words, you cannot have the Bible without Jesus and still encounter the Word of God. Jesus himself says this. This is in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. He says to the scribes and the Pharisees, you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see what we're getting at? Take Jesus out of the Bible. It's pointless. It's worthless. And I kind of tremble to say that. Jesus is the one around whom the whole Bible is, and you have not encountered the Word of God. By way of illustration, a few weeks ago, Pastor Ryan was leading our Abide um, Men's Bible Study, and he opened with an icebreaker. I like icebreakers, and this was a good one. He said, give us one word that describes you, or that sums you up. And so some of the men would say, um, stubborn, or creative, or curious. Well, God would say Jesus. He's the one that God spoke to explain himself. Jesus is God's self-revelation in a person. Jesus himself says this time and again in John's gospel. They said, show us the Father. And he's like, don't you get it? I've been with you for years now. And if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Jesus explains God. He's the word God chose. So the person and work of Jesus Christ make up the message of the Bible in summation. The Bible culminates in Jesus. He's the, the telos, the point that the whole thing has been driving towards. So it's about him. He himself is the word of God. And thus the, the word of God that we have written down is about him. It bears witness to him. So if you take Jesus out of the equation, what are you left with? And therefore, if that's true, then true and faithful, hear me, true and faithful human preaching about the Bible's message that revolves around Jesus is the word of God too. If anything I say is not based on the Bible and it doesn't culminate in Jesus, you are free to disregard it. Find another church. It's the second time I've disinvited people this month from our church. We want you here. You see what I'm saying, though? If what I say is grounded on the truth, though, if what Pastor Ryan and I preach from the pulpit is about Jesus, glorifies Jesus, revolves around Jesus, explains Jesus from the Bible, then we would all do well to listen to it. It's worthy of being received, not because of me, not because of Ryan, not on our merit, but on the merit of Christ, the Word made flesh about whom this whole thing is about. That's why even immoral preachers sometimes preach the Word of God. God is kind to even allow that to happen. One time while, while we were in Scotland, there was um, this little highland church called Partick, and I was preaching for them, and I was kind of nervous because, you know, I'm this boisterous American kid, and they're a bunch of sort of old, dour Scotsmen. And they had me in, and they've got their sort of set ways and traditions of what, what you do and what you don't do, and I was always fumbling my way through it and getting it wrong a little bit. So I just I felt nervous. Now, one of those little traditions is at the end of a Scottish sermon, the preacher generally just says, Amen. 
and everyone folds their hands and does it, you know. It, it ends with amen. We usually don't end our sermons with amen, but that's fine. Well, I got confused and flustered, and I ended my sermon with, this is the word of God. <laughs> it was a little bit embarrassing. But theologically, I hope it was true. If not, what's the point? What am I even doing up here? What are you even doing down there? If it's not the word of God. I myself am deeply fallible and deeply flawed. And every preacher of the gospel is. And we say a lot of things that are imperfect and imprecise. And sometimes we're just wrong. And I hope that we're correctable. But when we stand on the truth of God's word and faithfully proclaim the Christ-exalting message of the Bible, we can say this is the word of God. So whether or not we're preaching from Genesis, which we have done and have been doing and will do again, 1 Thessalonians, Song of Solomon, whatever, right? We're preaching the Bible. It's about the good news of Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. And so just to be clear that we're talking about the good news, let's sum that up. What is this gospel, this good news? The sum total of the message is the atoning death of Jesus in our place to forgive our sins. You know, the ones that you think are unforgivable, those ones. And then to reconcile you to God as if nothing ever happened between you. And it's about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to make us righteous before God and to give us this certain hope of unending life in his presence as a new creation. And it's about the promised return of Jesus to this earth to judge the living and the dead and to perfect all those who believe forever so we can live with him in the perfect joy and perfect peace of the new creation to God's eternal glory and our eternal joy. That's what it's all about. Simply put, the word of God is a message of good news. And it must be received and accepted by faith, as Paul says. And when we receive it, it goes to work in us, radically transforming our lives forever. Because like we talked about a few weeks ago, the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. So that's the word of God. So number two, that leads us to the question, how do we receive and accept it? Paul says, again in verse 13, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You see what Paul's saying? You heard it from my mouth with your ears. You heard it from a man in human ears, but you understood, you welcomed it into your life, saying that's not just human wisdom. If the word of God is true, then the most important thing we can do is ask the question, how do I receive it? How do I accept it? Or have I? So first, we have to receive it as it really is, right? The word of God. When I log onto YouTube, uh, my page is full of suggestions of things I might like. They're usually wrong, unless it's Star Wars related. I like Star Wars videos. But it's often like, hey, you're going to love this Joe Rogan podcast. You're going to love this Jordan Peterson thing. It's, it's fine. 
They're interesting, articulate men with interesting, articulate messages. But they're just the word of man. And it's full of good advice and good information. But very little of what we find on those sorts of platforms are good news. And there's a big difference between information and good news. And none of that stuff, unless it is the word of God, has any power at all. Their words don't do anything in me at all. They just ask us to do things in return. You know, 10 steps to a happier life or whatever. All of those promises, do X, Y, and Z, and you will be more fulfilled as a human. They are empty promises if they're not about Jesus. Empty promises. Self-help techniques to guide us more effortlessly to the grave. We don't need more of that. Here's what we need more of. The one message in the entirety of human history that comes with the power to overcome the grave. That's what we need more of. Not messages just to help you cope with your shame and guilt, but a message so full of the power of God that you overcome your shame and guilt by the blood of Christ. I don't want to just live with it, do you? I want to bury it. That's why you don't hear me preach many application points. Because this isn't about how you need to go and live differently and improve your life. It's about the power of God in the word of God, working in you by the spirit of God. Most of us know the right thing to do. What we need is our motivator, our desirer, our love core replaced, which is only what the gospel does. So I'm going to skip this page because it didn't make any sense here. I want to talk about the word received and accepted. I might regret that later. <laughs> right, received and accepted. Uh, they feel like synonyms in English, right? To receive and to accept seems like basically the same thing. In Greek, they're two very distinct words. So if I hand you a book, you can receive it. You receive an object from me. But if I show up at your door, you accept me. You might offer me a cup of coffee or a tea. The word accept, accepted the word of God, it's a hospitality word. It's a welcome word. The church in Thessalonica heard the preaching of the gospel and they welcomed it right into their lives. They wrapped their arms around it. They eagerly they were, they were joyful and welcomed it in. So picture your house, any given, uh, I don't know, Thursday afternoon, right? You're 6 p.m. You've got your own rhythms and habits. Everyone here is probably doing something a little different. But, you know, maybe you're setting the table for dinner and you've got, you know, your favorite band that you like to listen to while you cook or something. And then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and someone shows up. A guest has come. Well, all of your habits and all of your rhythms are now going to change. When you show hospitality, your life gets reordered. 
around who you're welcoming. Otherwise, it's not hospitality. And the more illustrious the guest, right, the more radical the reordering. You're going to respond a lot differently if I show up to have a cup of coffee than if, you know, King Charles knocks on your door. The more illustrious the guest, the more radical the reorientation of your life. And so to accept or welcome the Word of God as the Word of God means to radically reorder your life around Jesus. So instead of a sermon or a gospel message about the Word of God being just an, in, you know, an informational or entertaining speech, it becomes a redemptive experience. And through the Word of God working in you in real time, because of the goodness of God and the Spirit of God, not because of the skill of the preacher, because of that, it's a redemptive experience in which your life is currently being reoriented and reordered around Christ or driven from him. But there is no neutral ground with the word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides. That's what it does. Now, remember um, two weeks ago from chapter one, we talked about how Paul thanks God for the faith, love, and hope of the people in the church and how surprising that is because I don't think, you know, I don't thank Becca for Manon's work on the slides. Paul looks at the faith, love, and hope in the church and says, God did this. I thank God for the fruit in your life. And now that same thing is happening here. Paul essentially says, we thank God because you accepted and received the word. That only makes sense if God is behind our welcoming the gospel. That only makes sense if the faith to accept and receive the word of God is a gift from God. Otherwise, this is just nonsense. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense without that. The reality is left to ourselves, we're all blind and deaf when it comes to the word of God. Without the spirit of God, no one hears the gospel and says, yeah, count me in. That sounds good. I'm totally all in with that. None of us would do that. I spent the first half of my life not doing that, hearing the gospel over and over and over and receiving it like I took it in my hands and said, sure, that's true, but I didn't live it. I didn't welcome it. I think we all know what that's like. That's what we do left to ourselves. But then the Spirit of God intervenes and gives us a faith that was foreign to us, an alien faith, so that we might hear and receive and welcome the Word. For instance, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, if God has not called you effectually, powerfully, then the gospel will be nonsensical to you. It will seem like foolishness. 
But if God has called you, then he will give you the faith to hear and welcome the gospel as the good news. And it will become the power of God and the wisdom of God to you. And it will go to work in you. Paul goes on a few verses later. He says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You ever just thank God that you're a Christian? You don't thank yourself for your good sense to finally come to Jesus. You say, God, thank you for making me a Christian. Thank you for saving me. Paul says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God gives us the faith. If any of us have received the faith, if any of us have accepted the good news into our lives, if we've welcomed Jesus, we boast in the Lord. That was a gift of God. So Paul's pulling back the curtain a little bit. On, on the stage, it's like he's saying, you, re you really must believe. You have believing to do. Get after it. He's persuasive. He's compelling. He's logical and rational. You must believe. And then he opens the curtain and goes, and it's God who gives you that belief. Both of those things have to be true. But the reality is that that sort of election and calling where we receive a saving faith from Christ, we can only see it in hindsight. It's the only way that we can assent to the doctrine, but in our personal experience, well, it looks like this. You say, uh, you hear the gospel and you go, whoa, yeah, that's true. And my heart is starting to warm to Jesus. And so I'm going to receive him into my life and I'm going to pray and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do that. And then in hindsight, we go, I believed because God gave me faith. God opened my eyes. God interrupted my life. God called me. To God be the glory. Remember, when Jesus says to his, his disciples, in the Gospels, the big question is always, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? So Jesus says to his 12, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. So he got it right, A+. And Jesus says, yeah, but flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So even just receiving and welcoming the Word of God shows that the Word of God is at work in us because faith comes by hearing. So I know that as I'm talking about that, it's possible that some of you might actually be feeling a little bit of something like despair. Um, the reason is you might know that you're called, and then you might know people that you love deeply and wonder why aren't they? Why me and, and not them? And I understand. Um, I want to reiterate, though, how this works. Because we've been given a, a flimsy version of this in pop theology, if you will. Here's how this works. First Thessalonians 1, Paul says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you salvifically. 
He has chosen to give you saving faith. He's chosen you. Great, so they're elect. That's wonderful. But then in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. The thing about first fruits is there's second fruits coming and third fruits and so on. In other words, Jesus himself on the road to Damascus chose Paul who was on his way to persecute the church and he gave him faith so that Paul could go preach the gospel. And by the preaching of the gospel and the life that Paul lived in accordance with the gospel, God uses that to choose others and give them faith so that they might repeat the cycle and go and do likewise. And if you're a Christian today, it's because of that. It's because that's how God makes Christians. The word of God, powerfully at work in the people of God who are chosen so that others might receive faith and find that they had been chosen to. So the doctrine of election and evangelism go beautifully hand in hand. Where am I? <laughs> All right, let's go to number three. How does it work in us? So what is the word of God? How do we receive and accept it? And now Paul's telling us it's doing something too. Let's look at that. Um, again, when we say word of God, we're talking about the words and message of the Bible as they terminate in, revolve around, point to, explain, and glorify Jesus. So to receive and accept the word of God is to welcome Jesus himself into our life as Lord. And that means that it's not a one-time transaction. It's not one and done. Notice the verb tenses in this verse. You past tense, received. Past tense, accepted. And then present tense, which is at work in you, believers. So you, you had a day maybe where you decided to welcome Jesus into your life. And from that point on, the word of God is at work in you. The word of God is currently at work in you. Welcoming Jesus into your life changes everything. And not just once. It's a, it continues on. And so it's probably less like having a guest stop by your house and more like having a king on the throne where the whole kingdom now is ruled and reigned differently. One of the clearest teachings from the Bible on how the word of God is at work in us comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And if you've been around very long, You've heard us talk about this a lot. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. When, when, when God gives us faith, eyes to see and ears to hear the word of God, it's like a veil has been removed from before our face. So what was once cloudy and unclear and confusing, stumbling block and folly, now becomes glorious, beautiful, and precious. So now that, that foolish gospel that didn't make sense to us before 
we gaze upon that gospel as what it really is, the power and wisdom of God. So with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord. So we see and savor the beauty of God in the Bible as it teaches us the gospel. And as we gaze on the gospel, we are being in real time transformed to look more and more like Jesus. That's the word of God at work in believers. And that's far more precious than any momentary comfort or security. That's how the Thessalonians were able to suffer well for Jesus. They didn't calculate and go eternal life better than momentary discomfort. That's a true calculation, but that's not a transformative calculation, right? We all eat things one night knowing we're going to regret it the next day. So we know that's not transformative, that logic, even though it might be true. The way that they're transformed is by seeing the powerful love of Jesus for them on the cross so clearly and so blazingly beautifully that they come to love who they didn't used to love. That their hearts are set on fire for him. They're so ferociously for Jesus because he's so lovingly for them that every other love and comfort pales in comparison. Do you know Jesus like that? That's what the word of God does in you when you receive and welcome it. All right, let's wrap this up. If you believe in Jesus, at the end of your life, if God gives you that clarity and opportunity, or just after the resurrection, perhaps, you'll look back and you'll say three things. One, you'll say, God was merciful and gracious to give me faith so that I could receive and accept his word and live with him forever. To God be the glory. Two, you'll say God was loving and faithful to work in me and transform me, to make me more like Jesus. To God be the glory. And three, you'll say God, in, in giving me himself in mercy and love and faithfulness, he gave me something worth suffering for. He gave me something more precious than my own mortal safety and comfort. To God be the glory. This is the word of God.